Hello, everybody. Dr. Lonnie Stewart here from the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. Are you a physical therapy student about to start studying for the National Physical Therapy Examination? Or maybe you're a professor, a program director, or a clinical instructor who teaches DPT students preparing for the NPTE? Either way, we would recommend checking out our sponsor, NPTE Final Frontier, and the community they've built around preparing for and succeeding on the NPTE. That exam and the preparation that goes along with it can be long, tedious, difficult, and stress-inducing, but it doesn't have to be. NPTE Final Frontier has the tactics and resources to help address all of the usual barriers. They even have scholarships to help with NPTE study courses, FSBPT registration fees, and even research opportunities. And if that's not enough, they're even donating to the very first annual HET Podcast Scholarship to be awarded at the end of every year. Go to NPTEFF.com for all of the details and use code HET for 10% off all purchases. Links to both the NPTE Final Frontier and their scholarship options are available in the show notes. And now, let's get ready to learn. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, uh, and I've got with me longtime friend uh, and colleague, Dr. Ken Kusher. Ken, tell us a little bit about your academic journey and how it's led you to where you are today. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's been quite the journey from clinician to academia. As many of us in uh, PT and healthcare education, we start as clinicians, we're educating patients, and all of a sudden we're educating a student. A friend of mine, a good mentor, Len John, now the dean at Clarkson University uh, in 2010, 11, he's like, hey, Ken, would you like to teach a class? And I was working out patient orthopedics and had never really given any thought to academia. And I was like, sure, I, I teach you know, sports medicine. I had AT background, PT. I was working outpatient clinic um, and got the bug um, and got into academia and you know started teaching in 2011. Uh, took a job as a clinical faculty in the athletic training sports med department. Uh, was there for seven years. Um, got a, a you know opportunity to kind of learn about academia, learn about you know education and teaching and one of my burning questions when I got this guy took the shoulder on there, forget it. And I'm like, why am I teaching the way I'm teaching? Like, uh, you know, I, this is how I learned. This is what I was, how I was educated, but why am I doing that? And, um, led me down a path to get my ADD kind of, you know, and you're where I love, you know, why are we doing what we do? And that was a great journey from, you know, 2013 to 17. Um, and in that time, you know, switched over to the PT department, you know, I really got interested in data analytics, learning analytics, assessment of, you know, tracking student outcomes and knowing why students do what they do and how they make, you know, mistakes or do they know what mistakes they're making. Um, and as I kind of got into that, you know, I always use the analogy, you know, in education and healthcare education, it's sometimes tracking our experiences, right? Like if I saw five ACLs, does that mean I can rehab five ACLs? Not necessarily, right? Because I don't know the quality of that experience. I don't know the, in, in the judgment, the reasoning that when I'm behind that clinician and that experience with the student. So I've always kept that analogy in my head of, you know, number doesn't equal quality. And, and that's really led me into PT education. Uh, I quit the university and now assistant professor and chair of the PT department and really looking at kind of scholarship of teaching and learning and, and how can we educate students better? And, and most of my time now is taught in clinical decision-making courses, differential diagnosis, um, and subtle research of, you know, really looking at judgments, errors in judgments, making decisions. To me, that is the ultimate clinical skill that we are not teaching health professions is the ability to make sound decisions. What is the bias? What are the errors? What are the pitfalls? And then 
why, how can we make better judgments, right? Healthcare is evolving, you know, this podcast, others, you know, education needs to evolve with it. We can't just be a knowledge derivative anymore. So that's uh, in a nutshell, my, my journey, where I'm at and how I got to higher education and PT education specifically. Yeah. Uh, I very much like you, uh, Ken and I overlapped in the EDD program a little bit there at, uh, USA and, and I didn't know how to learn. I didn't, I was a straight rote memorizer up until grad school and even probably into the EDD program. I didn't know that that wasn't learning, you know, and it's sad that I got to that point and that far along my journey till, till I really realized how we learn and, and how do we process the information. Uh, and now I've become a much bigger fan of the transfer of knowledge, uh, which kind of brings us here today to kind of talk about how we learn and your area of expertise and metacognition. So tell us a little bit about that. What is metacognition? Let's start there. Yeah, let's start there. That's the million dollar question. We have yeah. to that now here at Quinnipiac in our program. And in the 70s, label and them in 76, 79, really just termed it as thinking about thinking, making our cognition overt, right? And that's the simplest definition. You'll hear that in Q through 12. You'll hear that anywhere. Um, that really lends itself to sort of opening people's eyes. I had a great mentor and a cognitive psychologist of teaching and learning, Chris Hockela, runs the Center for Teaching and Learning at Springfield College. Um, and he's like, we really just need to make thinking overt, right? A lot of times now we you know, have distractions. We have, you know, kind of the noise in our daily lives. And we don't take enough time to step back and be like, what are our thoughts and reasoning? And I, I talk to my students in the first clinical decision-making course that we offer at Quinnipiac about reflection. And I tell them, you know, when you're learning about goniometry, you're thinking about where your hands are placed, where you're kind of aligning the goniometer, where the axis is, where the moving arm and the stationary arm. You're going through those steps and those processes and you're making them overt. We don't do that with judgments. Inherently, we just think about decisions, right? Hey, we made the decision, what am I having for breakfast? We made a decision, what clothes I'm going to wear. But then when it gets to the big decision of, yeah, we ask you, here's this patient, uh, go do the eval. And you ask about a diagnosis and prognosis. That's a big decision. And now we have this aha moment of like, I'm not sure how I got there. Um, So we're really trying to break it down. And what I've been spending the last five or six years on is how do one, we make thinking overt. Two, how do we teach that thinking? And then three, how do we assess that thinking, right? And I think metacognition, um, it's not a novel idea. It's not something new that I thought of. Um, it's really a translational science experiment of cognitive psychology has known since the 70s, 80s, Ransford in the 90s, you know, and even into 2000, uh, where Shaw and Dennison, who what I really you know studied as the metacognitive awareness inventory, the 90s and 2000s, we started operationalizing metacognition. And you know we can get into the dialogue of executive functioning or things that you see in K-12. But for me, I keep it simple, Scott. I keep it with the students is, what are the judgments or reasoning that you go about in clinical practice, right? I'm taking the knowledge that's out there in cognitive psychology, the literature, and applying it to right now, PT education, we've done a little bit with, you know, nursing and others, but it's thinking about thinking. And then how do we apply that to our discipline specific practice? Yeah, I love that. That really uh, simplifies it for me and breaks it down, but thinking about thinking, you know, and mm -hmm. that's, that's really what I needed uh, to, to make that transitional shift of how am I even learning this stuff? You know, why, what, what's making it stick? What's working? What's not working? Um, so, so let's talk about that. Let's do a little bit deeper dive there. You know, what does that look like for students that are sitting there learning physical therapy information, not even the application yet into the clinical world, but students that are sitting there taking in all this information we're throwing at them. 
What what does that look like? What are they having to do in order to apply metacognition for just right now as they're sitting there learning? Yeah, great question. And this is one that we've spent a lot of time talking with faculty and students on. And and again, I, I, I don't claim to be the uh, an, an expert or innovator in Einstein, but I've taken Sean Dennison's definition of metacognitive awareness and I've deconstructed those two categories. One is the knowledge of cognition. You know, what do you know? Declarative, procedural, what's your knowledge? And then the regulation of cognition. And to me, if you look at a competency scale, those are very different entities, right? It's got the knowledge of cognition. That's our anatomy, our neuroanatomy, our kinesis of physical therapists. How do you know what you know? Like, Jay, here's the foundations of clinical sciences. Let's apply them to our patient. That's the knowledge part, right? And that's step one in getting students to understand that, hey, the better I am at long-term memory, retention, retrieval practices, that's going to help my knowledge of cognition, my you know kind of declarative knowledge of what I need to do, how I need to do it, and then how does that going to relate to clinical practice? Um, and we can talk a little bit later what we've seen with that. But the second part of that is regulation of cognition. And this is really where you and I kind of similarities of we wanted to know how do students plan their thoughts? How do they monitor their thoughts? How do they evaluate them? What's their information in processing? What are the system errors that they're noticing? That, to me, is a much more complex skill. And we use that later on in our curriculum as they've had some clinical experience. They've had some uh, uh, aha moments of like, hey, I thought I could do this, but I didn't, right? And they're monitoring that. Not happening in real time. When I started studying it, I thought I could operationalize that really easily. Like, to me, that makes sense. Uh, But what I found out is that's much more complex. Uh, But it is still feasible. Um, We're just kind of teasing that out now. At what level can you do that? Because now you look at Erickson, the literature on um, expertise and expert performance and chi and them. And that's a little bit different too, of we're looking at a, a competency, not just an awareness now, but also a competency of cognition of here's our reasoning processing. And I'm starting as a novice. Um, and I probably can really understand what I know. And I don't know how well I use that and play and monitor and assess that are different skill sets that take a little bit more experience, take a little bit deeper understanding of their thought processes. So that's how we talk about it uh, in my classes. We're talking about reflection uh, as kind of the first part, what I know, what I don't know. You know, we do summative assessments, you know, kind of, can I bring that information forward? We're talking about knowing your anatomy, kinesis and neuroanatomy, not just for the exam, but for your patient. I, I joke with the student, there's not a day on Monday, you know, anatomy, Tuesday, you know, kinesis and Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, neuro. You have to know all of that to know you treat your patients, right? Um, so we really talk in those frames about declarative and procedural knowledge in that sense, it's more of following maybe the model of practice or you kind of, here's a step-by-step progression. That's declarative and procedural in our discipline, how we've operationalized it at least. Um, And that kind of ebbs and flows with the level of the learner, but faculty are buying into that now. And we're, you know, we set up, you know, scaffolded learning experiences to really help students with that because they don't come in with that. You know, it's very superficial learning. You and I know that um, but I think that's the first step. And the second step is obviously the regulation of that cognition. Um, and, and that's how we've operationalized it and explained it to students. It keeps it relatively simple, but that's kind of the first metric. The second part of it, the second layer, I would say, is we're using dual processing theory, type one and type two processing, fast and slow thinking. And uh, Kahneman's book you know, on fast and slow thinking and dual processing, uh, Trisha Frokop out of Hartford, she was one of our colleagues as well you know, put some of that out and how that can relate to PT education and judgment. Um, that's another great visual for students to operationalize their thinking. Are they slow and analytical? Are they deliberate and looking at the evidence? Is that kind of reliable and valid? Are they using 
the converse of that, which would be fast and intuition, um, and kind of making those snap judgments, but then they have more speed and efficiency. And contrasting these two kind of what I would call cognitive frameworks of metacognitive awareness and then dual processing allows them to sort of visualize what we're talking about. We're telling you you need knowledge first, and then you can regulate it. And we're telling you you need to decide when you're using your slow thinking, you're being very analytical and using the data, or when you're using your gut intuition, right? And those together have helped us actually inform and teach cognition as, as kind of a reasoning-based skill. Yeah, I mean, when I go back, right, one of the things that I've come to know that I've really enjoyed through some of the research that's done by Gail Jensen and some of those other people that look into experts, right, and expert clinicians, it really, and I've started introducing this to a lot of my students as well, is the reflection piece, right? You've got to go back and reflect upon what you learned, what you know, what, you know, and, and see what worked, what didn't work, what, what could I do better next time? You know, like you have to build on that. Right. And, and for me, when I finally did get into the, you know, the flow of my EDD program, it, it really needed that by like you were talking about the scaffolding, right. That was huge for me in, in understanding how we learn. And how to build somebody up by building up that scaffolding, getting them to the top and then like pushing them out of the nest and letting them flop on their own, you know, and pulling down the scaffolding and letting them fly. Right. So, so that a lot of that makes sense to me now. It didn't, you know, prior, but that makes sense for a framework and a structure, at least of how we're starting to gather knowledge and learn. Now let's take it to the next step. You've got these students, they're sitting here, they're learning about physical therapy. How do we then make that shift out into the clinical world and how they're applying that into, you know, clinical knowledge? Great question and segue. I don't even know if you knew it, but uh, the, the research project or we're wrapping up here is a four-year project. I'm looking at pre and post metacognitive awareness scores on first full-time clinical experience. And ours is integrated within the curriculum. So they finish up their didactic. They have what we consider foundation in the clinical sciences, and then they have a foundational course in musculoskeletal. Uh, an intro to acute care cardiopulm, and they've had a physical therapy process, and they're going out to their first clinical, which is intermeshed, interspersed within our curriculum, right? And what we looked at was their pre-MAI scores, their awareness of kind of their knowledge about cognition and the regulation, and then six to 10 weeks after, depending on the variability of the, the clinical, we looked at the post-scores as well. Um, and here's the key to that, Scott, you know, a little uh, teaser, I guess, for the manuscript coming out is, you know, we can actually see an improvement in their knowledge of cognition. They're declaring a procedural knowledge. What we don't see is the regulation of cognition increase. So what's that telling us is that they've taken their foundational declarative PT knowledge and now they've applied it and they were able to reflect on that a little bit and they saw improvements. They were like, wow, I actually know what I know. Um, and that first time clinical experience is highly valuable for two reasons. One, it confirms the process cognitively that I'm going to use all this information in clinical practice, and now I'm aware of it and I can reflect on it. And two, it sets them up for what we call the, the next step or the aha moment of how do I know to do a better job of making those decisions autonomously as a clinician in the future without the intermediate step. And now for a quick shout out to our newest sponsor, Varela Financial. If you're a physical therapist and you have student loan debt, you got to talk to these guys. What makes them unique is that they view financial planning like running hurdles on a track. And for PTs, the first hurdle many of us run into is student loan debt. Varela Financial will help you get over that hurdle. They not only take the time to explain to you which plans you individually qualify for and how those plans work, 
but they also take the time to show you what your individual case looks like mapped out within each option. So if you're looking for help on your student loan debt or any area of personal finances, we recommend working with them. I use Varela Financial personally, and they were able to help me lower my student loan repayment from about $1,800 a month down to about $135 per month simply by finding the right repayment plan that best fit me, my family, and our life goals. You can check them out at varelafinancial.com. Link is in the show notes if you need it for reference, and tell them the HET podcast crew sent you. And now back to the show. And I'm a huge proponent of experiential learning. It's going to be hard for us to quantify in health professions if they actually have our declarative information. Like, you know, medicine has the step progression. They have exams when we've modeled some of that too, where you look at your, your information and you're reciting that information. But without that first introduction into clinical practice, we don't really know what, if they can translate it, right? They can sit in the class, study it peripherally, you know, on a superficial level. Now we're starting to look at, okay, now that we know that that experiential learning has increased your your knowledge of cognition, declarative and procedural knowledge, okay, now you've solidified that foundation. Now, if we look at educational development, we should be able to build on that, right? Now we can look at reflection and we have a, a point in time that's demarcated with data that says, here's where you were, here's how you move forward, let's take you to the next level, right? So now as we come back into the curriculum and they have another um, 12 months of didactic work with us with integrated clinical experiences, we can really hone in and focus on, are you regulating your cognition? A lot more reflection, a lot more feedback um, in their monitoring, a lot more system analysis of where are my errors in my processes? Where are my judgments coming up well and where are they coming up short, right? We talk about not having a defined outcome, but more of a success metric of, we have the patient goals, but what are the therapist goals and what's verifiable? Um, and that's with where we sort of add on the layers of experiential judgments to build their confidence in the regulation aspect. We're finishing up our five-year study of our curriculum to see the pre to post, what that looks like. So in the fall of 2023, we'll have five years of data looking at clinical reasoning over that. So we thought it was really important to get this four-year data out on the first-time clinical experiences, because as you talked about, the, the novice to mastery, like when is the point in time where they're actually applying these clinical sciences and the disciplinary knowledge of PT? And is that meaningful or not? Because a lot of programs don't have that in the, that middle clinical experience. Um, and we felt like, hey, again, I might have jumped the gun. My hypothesis was that they would actually enhance all of their you know, metacognitive awareness in both knowledge of and regulation of cognition, but they didn't move the needle on the regulation of cognition. It's too early on in their development as a clinician to actually regulate plan, monitor, and evaluate their thoughts. Really all they're doing in that first experience is solidifying the disciplinary knowledge and the processes that we go through, whether it be special tests, MMT, they're solidifying that in that first experience, which to me as an educator is invaluable because I could do a summative test, but now I actually can prove that they can take that foundational information and apply it to physical therapy. So the next caveat is how well can we get them, how far along in this progression from novice to master, or even entry level, right? Because they're not going to be masters at entry level. Can we get them on the regulation of cognition? And then that's the next. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly in hindsight what, what I found. I found that after my first clinical rotation, I learned a ton. And it was a lot of great information. And the experiential learning portion of it was amazing. But it was definitely still foundational, right? I was still just trying to keep my head above float and survive out in the real world, you know, if yeah. you will. But it, it, it does make sense and it, it gives us that starting point 
and allows us to then again realize what we know, how we know it, how we come to know it, right? And how it's different than learning in the classroom too, I think a little bit. Because that that's a, uh, it seems like to me, it was a very big difference on how I learned didactically versus clinically, which was good. I think, I think I, I needed to see that for sure. But uh, like I said, we only have limited number of clinical rotations uh, in most, most programs. So we got to figure out a way to, to hit it and hit it hard and, and, and make sure that we're solidifying what we can, when we can. Uh, so I like that. I'm excited to, to see what's, what's coming in the future then uh, with, with you guys and your data and stuff. So my next question then is, all right. If we have these students that are just getting started, have no idea what metacognition is, or even professors, we just don't know, this is our first time kind of hearing it, what would you recommend to either a professor teaching or a student learning to, to just get started here? What are some activities, some ideas, some things that we can really grasp onto if we're just getting started trying to implement some of this stuff and learn about metacognition? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Reflection is the first piece, and it takes time and patience to really bring a skill. It's almost like manual therapy, or, you know, you're looking at some of the more complex assessments in neuro, or you, you need time for skill acquisition, right? And this is the, the caveat that we talk about in our, with faculty is the knowledge dumps versus the skill development, right? And the content, content, content heavy that we have from, you know, the board exam or CAPTI, and people are really preoccupied with, I need to develop, I need to deliver content, right? Um, it takes time to do reflection. Um, and it takes time from faculty and it takes time from students to be able to look and reflect. I think minute papers, taking time to ask questions with inquiry in the class to really understand and assess where students are thinking. Because if they're focusing on the 88 slide PowerPoint, but they're not focusing on the process that gets them there to use that information, those are the simple, what I say is on the ground level metacognitive skills, right? Taking time to reflect taking time to assess where students are at in their thinking and their processes. Most students come to us uh, from an undergraduate studies of performance-based academia, right? What were my grades? What was my GPA? What was my outcome? You need to flip that script. And once you've done that, which takes a little bit of uh, effort on both fronts, on the student front being open to it and the faculty front, um, the next step is saying, okay, what is metacognition and being overt with your dialogue, your educational practices. And there's all books on those. And, you know, we can look at the pedagogical implications in the curriculum and the active engaged learner, all that stuff kind of goes in line with it, but being overt about it, um, you know, you would be overt in anatomy, origin insertions, right. And how structure leads to function. That's something that's a theme or a thread in anatomy that you would teach all the time. Bring that same theme of cognitive awareness to anatomy. How do you know that these origin insertions, this book structure and function is going to help you and making some applications, connections to it? So I think reflecting patience and then taking the cognitive load of content away from the equation. Um, I am constantly talking to our faculty about decreasing the cognitive load. There's no space and time for thinking about thinking if students are bombarded by content, right? You know that, I know that. That should be a given in time, but unfortunately, I take myself back, you know, 10 years, we still teach the way we were taught, right? And we have people still instructing to the exam or to the content because there's a pressure of, you know, I inherited this course and I need to cover X, Y, and Z. Metacognitive strategies don't develop in that type of environment. They just don't. Um, they develop in an active, more open, creative environment, case-based learning. It's great as long as you don't follow the rigid timeline of, hey, we need to get to an answer here. Let's just go through the process. Let's model it. I do a lot of modeling thoughts. I think educators, particularly in health professions, 
PTO, TPA are great at modeling their thoughts if they take the time and think about it. You know how you got to a decision from taking the history. Actually, let me back up. From the moment the patient, you see them, to the time you take a history, to the time you prioritize your exam, to the time you educate them on their diagnosis and prognosis and sort of you know, collaborate on a plan, you know what your thoughts are. And if you take a moment and you pause, and I just did it in five seconds, and break that down for a student, that is a metacognitive strategy that now they can see, they can tangibly understand what you went through, and they can model that too. So reflection is definitely important. There's thousands of ways to do reflection. Two, you need to decrease content because in a high cognitive load, we're not taking the time to think about thinking of what we don't know. And the third is modeling and sort of going through an open and overt process with students showing them what your thoughts are, good and bad. I think that's the part that people don't realize. The humility to be like, here's where I made some cognitive errors. Here's where my biases come in. Here's where I you know, wish I could have done something different. Um, and that stuff is invaluable in creating an environment educationally that's open to judgments and cognitive reasoning versus an, uh, an evaluative environment of you need to know this, right? Um, so those would be my three takeaways. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, especially, you know, with respects to cognitive load, we're always trying to to decrease that because it's just giving them more, giving them more, giving them more. It's not the answer. Like shoving more stuff into an already packed curriculum is not the answer. It's not going to help them learn more, you know, and I, I, I think we need to take that pause and say, all right, you know, let's thin this out a little. Let's let's really hit home on the heavy structures that are going to do, you know, a lot of the the heavy lifting for them later on down the line. And really hit hit home. And and I like to call it, you know, thinking out loud, right? Even when we're going through like practice, practical type situations, right? I'm I'm trying to think out loud while I walk through a demonstration so that they can see my thought process. Uh, and I just wish I could get those comic type thought bubbles up above my head. It would make my job a whole lot easier, right? But but that's the premise behind it is trying to think out loud and walk them through your your strategy. And absolutely. I mean, our faculty have gotten so in tune with that, you know, where we teach students, we can't tell you every diagnosis, every patient you're going to see. Here's a story about my clinical expertise of somebody that I never expected to see or a diagnosis I never thought of, where I've been out 20 years and now this patient walked through my door. How am I going to handle that? And that's the context with which we frame this cognitive awareness. You can use the term metacognition. Our students, you know it. But you can just talk about thinking and thinking out and reasoning and judgments in clinical practice. That's the type of environment we need to foster because if we prepare them for flexibility and adaptability, the master adaptive learner kind of goes on that, then they're going to be ready for anything clinically. And now our direct access, now our accessibility, our value in healthcare goes up exponentially, right? If we just stay to the traditional outpatient, inpatient PT, we you know teach to the boards or to the standards, that's not really moving us to clinical judgments or clinical practitioners that make sound judgments. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, Ken, thank you for your time, man, and for coming on to talk about uh, all things metacognition. We we ask every uh, guest on the show this one final closing question. If you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? Well, that's a loaded question. No uh, precursor on that. Off the cuff, I will say um, the performance environment is not really w- valuable for us in higher education. The competency-based is really where we need to go. I guess I'll make the, the parallel to metacognition and clinical reasoning. There's no grade that tells us someone's going to make great clinical judgments. There's no grade that says they're going to be a great clinician. 
if we could truly move to an environment, then it's really about skill acquisition, knowledge development and integration, and then a flexibility and learning to adapt to your environment and then find a level of competence with that type of student clinician. Um, that to me is the holy grail. The second part I will add is having data to support that. We need to move away from a A's, B's, and GPA to a learning analytics. We look for outcomes in our patients. Why aren't we looking for outcomes in our students um, and that are measurable, that are saying, here's the value of your education and here's where you are as a developing clinician. So data and your competency is really where we need to go, Scott. Yeah, I love that. I tell my my students all the time, I hate grades. I was never a great, I mean, you know, I was a straight A student up until college. Then it got hard for me, right? And then I was mainly a B student with a couple C's sprinkled in. Like I, I worked hard though. I really did to get the knowledge. Now, granted, I wasn't learning properly, so that didn't help me much, right? But, you know, it, the grades aren't as important. And I see this now, obviously I had to reflect and go back to really see the grades are not as important as did you take away something from my class? Did you learn something from my class? Did I get you on the track for building knowledge and, and mastery of skills? Right. And I think, you know, you saw this as well. ELC had a handful of, of presentations this year on competency-based learning. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, there's definitely going to be a lot of people starting to jump ship, uh, you know, and I hope that that does happen. I think we're on the right track uh, with that. But then, like you said, we have to evaluate it and see we need a couple of uh, guinea pigs, so to speak, to go out there and do the hard work and the heavy lifts so that we can check the data and see, yeah, this makes sense. It does work. Uh, so fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. But uh, we definitely need a change, uh, you know, in the in the structure. And that's not just, you know. PT school or graduate school. I think that's higher education in, in across the nation, right? Grades just don't do as much good as they think, um, especially nowadays with like uh, some of the AI and artificial intelligence stuff coming out. Students are going to do less and less learning and more and more trying to earn a grade, you know? So we, we got to figure out ways to shape, reshape that and, and see what that looks like. So hopefully we're on the right track. We'll see. Yeah, I think we are. I appreciate it. You know, our, one last thought, our, our late mentor, Dan Lofal, would say, you know, um, learning makes memorization unnecessary. And if we truly are, you know, teaching students to learn and not memorize like a five or six-year-old child, then, you know, we really, that's when we're educating. So I think that's ultimately my goal too, is just be true educators where learning is the crux of what we do. That makes great clinicians and great people. And it makes it well worth our journey here in higher in education. And I appreciate your time today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ken, where can people reach out to you and, and find you if they have more follow-up questions or just want to learn more about uh, metacognition and what you're up to? Yeah, the best way is to email me at ken.kosior at qu.edu, ken.kosior at qu.edu. And I love to hear people interested and that's how I've gotten some great collaborations and research, but love to talk about clinical reasoning, judgments, and metacognition. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes so it's easy for everybody to find. Ken, thanks again for your time, man. It was a pleasure catching up with you. I look forward to uh, hear what you're up to in the future as well. Thanks again. Well, I hope that episode was entertaining as much as it was informational and educational. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, we ask you to please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. And please share out the episodes to those who you feel may be able to benefit from them. We also urge you to follow us on all social media platforms at HET Podcast and let us know what topics or experts you would like to hear from in future episodes. 
And just as a reminder, none of the information on today's show should be considered medical advice. It's simply infotainment or edutainment to help educate our audience. For medical advice, we always advise you to reach out to your preferred medical professionals, and we'll see you on the next show.